Uh, a week or so ago, I was on a conference call with a group of pastors listening to Ravi Zacharias give us some input about how to navigate the present culture in which we live. He said a number of very helpful things in the context of that conversation, but there was one statement that he made that just really stuck with me and has just kind of lodged in my soul for the last two weeks. It was this. He said, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. It's good, isn't it? That's why it's Ravi Zacharias, right? It's good. So Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. So if I were to ask you, why should somebody become a Christian? Why do you need to receive Jesus? How would you answer that question? My guess is that many of us, and rightly, would say, well, we're sinners. We, we need a savior. We've, we've done things that are wrong. And that would be true. Because in some respects, Jesus did come to make bad people good. That, that's the end game. But what Ravi is getting at is something that's more foundational, even underneath the question that I just asked. Why should you become a Christian? Because the reality is that our problem as human beings, my problem, is not just that we do bad things. Our problem is much deeper than that. Our problem is that underneath all of our lives, all of our human existence, friends, we don't just need renovation. We need a resurrection. We need to come out of the grave. We need a complete life transformation. And the hope of the gospel, the hope of the gospel of John, is that Jesus is the one that can make that happen. He's the one that can make dead people live. This morning, what we're gonna do is take our second step in our nine-week study of these first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, and today we're going to look at what does it mean that Jesus calls himself both the life and the light of men. He calls himself that throughout the Gospel, and in John's prologue, he identifies Jesus as such. Now, last week, we looked at three foundational truths about Jesus. We Examine the first three verses. We saw that Jesus is the Word. He's the self-disclosure of God. We saw that John says, in the beginning was the Word, that Jesus was there in the beginning, that he was God. And we also saw third, so he's the revelation, he is God, and third, he's the creator. By him all things exist. There was not anything made that was made without Jesus. So that means that he has the authority. Authority is the creator, that's not just rejecting him as doing one bad thing, but rejecting him is in effect treason. So John's purpose is clearly identified for us in chapter 20. Here's why John wrote the gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, here's why John wrote, so that you may believe, that's the main word of the whole gospel of John, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So what John aims to do is to combine both the stories of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, even the rejection of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, show you these stories, tell you about them, in order that you might believe, and that by believing, you might then have life. So John's aim is not just to make you better. John's aim is to transform you by introducing you to the one who is life, namely Jesus. 
So today we're gonna look at two more truths about Jesus, and then secondly, two things that Jesus does, or two ways that Jesus ministers. So two more truths about Jesus, and then two things that Jesus does. So as John is introducing us to both his gospel and to the life of Jesus, he continues with some foundational truths that we need to know. So if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're coming at a great time because we're talking about some very basic things about what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you become a Christian? John chapter one and verse four says this, in him was life. So the first truth, the first two additional truths we need to know about Jesus is this, number one, that Jesus is life. Now when you hear that term, Jesus is life, what do, you, what do you think life means? Some of you would immediately think, well, it must mean eternal life, like John three sixteen, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And well, that's true generally in John's gospel. The word life can often mean eternal life, but here, that's not what John has in mind. Others of you might think, well, life, maybe that means like abundant life, like a life that's full and kind of back to the way that God designed it, like in what Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10 when he said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Well, that would be true in John 10, but not quite what John has in mind here. So these definitions of life that I just gave you, two of them, wouldn't be wrong, but in John 1, 4, he has something even more foundational, and it's connected to what we saw in verses 1 to 3 about the way in which John uses the creation narrative in the first three verses. Like Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, in the beginning was the word. So John is using this creation motif to teach us important things about who and what Jesus is. So when he says that in him was life, he's pulling in this creation idea the way in which God spoke and then life became a reality in Genesis chapter one. For instance, on day one, he separates light from darkness merely by speaking it into existence. Day two, God separates the skies, the water, and the land. Day three, God speaks and vegetation appears and plants come into existence. Day four, he speaks and sun, moon, and stars are created. Day five, creatures in the sea and on the land are created. And can you just imagine what a, what a scene that must have been? God just says it and it appears and it is. Those of you who are C.S. Lewis fans in the Chronicles of Narnia will know that in a masterful way in The Magician's Nephew, if you've not read that book, I commend it to you, Lewis tries to capture the essence of what that was like. He tells the story of Diggory and Polly, two of the main characters, entering the world of nothingness, and they start hearing the singing of Aslan, the, the lion, the, the figure of Christ. Let, let me just read to you a section and just sort of sit back and enjoy the, the beauty of Lewis's words. He's just, he's trying to bring us into that creation account. He writes, a lion was pacing to and fro about that empty land, singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun, a gentle rippling music. 
As he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It sprang out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the hills like a wave. Polly was finding the song more and more interesting because she thought she was beginning to see the connection between the music and the things that were happening. When a line of dark fur sprang up on a ridge about 100 yards away, she felt that they were connected to a series of deep, prolonged notes which the lion had sung a second before. And when he burst into a rapid series of lighter notes, she was not surprised to see primroses suddenly appearing in every direction. Thus, with unspeakable thrill, she felt quite certain that all things were coming, as she said, out of the lion's head. When you listened to his song, you heard the things he was making up. When you looked round, you saw them. This was so exciting that she had no time to be afraid. The lion opened his mouth, but no sound came from it. He was breathing out a long, warm breath. It seemed to sway all the beasts as the winds sway a line of trees far overhead from beyond the veil of the blue sky, which hid them. The stars sang again a pure, cold, difficult music. And then there came a swift flash like fire, but it burnt nobody, either from the sky or from the lion itself. And every drop of blood tingled in the children's bodies and the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard was saying, Narnia, 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 awake, love, speak, think, be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. So that's how Lewis tries to help us understand the power, the beauty of what happens when God speaks and the universe is created. Now with that sort of narrative rendition in your mind, just hear the words in Genesis chapter two and verse seven in the creation of man, Adam. It says, then God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Just imagine what this is. God takes dust from the earth, he forms a human body that is lifeless. He breathes into that body, and imagine the moment when suddenly Adam went like this. <gasps> and he was suddenly alive. Dust has now formed a man, and suddenly, <gasps> he's a living creature, and God does that. The scene in creation is the stunning entrance of life into that which is lifeless. It's the creation of something out of nothing, of something that starts breathing that before was breathless. I was trying to think through, like, what's, this, what's close? So narratively, Lewis gets us there. I think for me, the closest sort of moment of the experience of this is the, in the birth of my children. I remember the moment when First and foremost, when they were in the womb, my wife, of course, could feel the movement of our children way before I could. And it's just gotta be for a mom, just a very unusual and beautiful thing to realize there's life inside of me. I remember her taking my hand and putting it on her womb, and the first time like, I felt a kick. I was just like, wow, something's alive in there. It's like, it's a baby, you know? Oh, yeah. And then, when, because we had twins, we could put my hand on either side of my wife's womb and I could feel two different kinds of movement. And that's where the wrestling began, right? There they are. <laughs> and then I remember the moment when Hayden came out of the womb 
My wife carried our twins to 39 and a half weeks. Yeah, ouch, right? I mean, it was, she says ouch, I'm not saying ouch, so just, you know, empathy, but no relationship there. So um, just want to be clear, it'll send me an email about that, all right? So Hayden, Hayden comes out, and our boys were six pounds, seven ounces, and six pounds, 11 ounces. I know, right? It's crazy. We should have won an award or something. But so they, they, he comes out, and I can't believe how big this baby is, and there's another one still in the hopper waiting to come out. Like, he's in the pipeline, you know what I'm saying? And the nurses jumped on my wife's womb to hold him in place because of all that room. He just wanted to stretch out, and they held And then he came out, and here we have two living human beings. It's just remarkable how anybody in that moment can go, oh, this happened by chance. I mean, uh, we're all coming out of some primordial swamp. Just, I don't know. I, that, that takes so much faith to get there. There's no way I can get there. That moment is a moment of worship as I realize God in heaven is the one who gives life. And what John is doing, friends, is he's pulling from this sort of creation narrative to help us understand when the Bible says, in him was life, that he's saying the same Jesus who's the revelation of God, the same Jesus who was there in the beginning, the same Jesus who was God, the same Jesus who's the creator of all things is the Jesus who is the source of all life and not just physical life, but all spiritual life and all that is life, that Jesus is the irreducible minimum of everything we know to be true and right and lovely and alive in this world. In him was life. Elsewhere, John says something very similar. In fact, New Testament scholars point to John 5, verses 25 to 26, as the most direct parallel to this concept. It says this, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. John 5, 25 to 26. You see, this text helps us to see the connection between Jesus doing amazing things, miracles, and that's what you're going to see through this book. John records these miracles in order for you to see the connection between who Jesus is and what he can do. He wants you to know that an hour is coming and it is already here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So what John aims to do and what I hope to do with this message is to help you to see the connection between what Jesus did for others and what he can do for you. John's purpose in this gospel is that you will see Jesus do amazing things. And John records these miracles so that you will see that in him is life so that you'll look to him as the one that if Jesus showed up, everything would change. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's what happened to you. You look to Jesus for life and then everything changed. So the text says, in him was life but the text also says that he is the light of men. So the second truth we need to understand here is that Jesus is the light. This idea of light is a very familiar metaphor in John's gospel. It's used throughout John's record. He loves the light-darkness sort of 
interplay and dynamic. A few examples of how John uses the word light in John chapter eight, he says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So what happens is that Jesus calls himself the light and connects belief to the idea of light. Without light, there is no belief, and without belief, there is no life. And so in verse four, we see this this movement from not just talking to us about who Jesus is, but also about what Jesus does. He says, this life was the light of men. So John is not just saying that Jesus is life to make a point about what's true about him. He's making this point to help us to understand Jesus' purpose in the world. He's not just life. He's not just light. This life is the light of men. So we'll see this further in the next verse as the light shines in the darkness. So when he says that Jesus is the light of men, what does he mean? There's so many things that, that, that he means with this idea of light. In, in the Gospel of John, light exposes things. So when Jesus enters, it makes sinful people, hypocritical people, really uncomfortable. John 3.20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. See, one of the things, if you're gonna become a Christian, you first must be willing to acknowledge that you're a sinner. And what Jesus does is he shines a spotlight on that waywardness. That's where he starts. And then secondly, we find that the the light separates. John 3.19 says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. The light of men leads us to belief. John 12.36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And then the light delivers in John 12, 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And the light then transforms. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world, says Jesus. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So this is what the light does. And these are just the texts from John's gospel. I just gave you five. There's about 15 different references to the word light just in John's gospel alone. And if we were to go to other passages in the New Testament, we would find even more references to what light does. So John is writing this account of Jesus' life so that you can not just know more about Jesus, he's writing this gospel so that you can know who Jesus is and have your life be transformed by Jesus. His aim is for you to know what Jesus did and who Jesus is so that by believing in Jesus, the light of men could shine in you and through you. For some of you who are not yet followers of Jesus, this life of Jesus is the most very basic reality of what you need to think about and deal with. Perhaps a friend brought you to church today because she cares for you. Maybe you're searching for answers because you've, you're starting to come to the conclusion, the right conclusion, that something is wrong inside of you. And the message of John's gospel is that the life 
and the light of men, namely Jesus, can transform you. You see, the power of what happens in in and through the gospel, through this gospel of John, is that Jesus shows us who we really are, but then he leads us to the one who can solve the brokenness of our hearts. The reason Jesus exposes us is so that we can see what it is that he can do for us, and once we realize our sinfulness and our trans- need for transformation, it's Jesus who is ready to start that work in you. And my prayer would be that God would do that work in you today. For those of you who are Christians, I just want to remind you that the same Jesus that transformed your heart when you received him and changed everything is the same Jesus who lights up every aspect of your life. The same Jesus who brought you out of darkness into light is the same Jesus who, if you'll let him, can transform your thinking and your actions and your affections and your desires and your words. Jesus makes dead people alive, and he does so by resurrecting every part of their life. So let me ask you, in the last week, which area of your life do you need more of the resurrected power of Christ? Where do you need more of the life of Jesus? Because you know, Jesus aims not just to save you from your sins. Being a Christian is more than just knowing where you go when you die. It is that the very life of Jesus, the very light of men through the personal work of Jesus begins to transform how you think and how you act. It transforms your sense of identity, your view of sexuality. Jesus gets in and shines a light on our money and our careers and our families. The light of Jesus shines how we think about ethnicity and racism. The beauty of the power of the gospel transforms how we think about how we give and what we do with our lives. And friends, the life of Jesus even transforms our pains and our sorrows. Take your Bible, go over to 2 Corinthians chapter four. Sometimes I read you a passage. This this time I want you to see it because I want you to see it in your copy of God's word because some of you need to underline this text because you need to come back to this. The life of Jesus can transform our sorrows and our sufferings. 2 Corinthians four and verse six. Notice how Paul uses this light and life idea in the context of hardship, verse six, chapter four, 2 Corinthians, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's true, but here's the problem. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Anybody feel like a jar of clay today? Anybody feel like a cracked pot? <laughs> Anyone feel like brokenness? We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So if you come to church today and you're like, I have no confidence in myself, praise God, that's right where you should be. If you come to church, if you come to church today, you're like, I got this. Yeah, you're in trouble, because you don't got it. Even if that's bad grammar. So here we go. Verse eight, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Notice this, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, why? Here it comes. You're suffering, you're in a hard place today, you're wondering what's the point? Here it is. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Jesus comes not only to rescue you, 
but so that the very life of Jesus can live in and through you. So you can take the sufferings and the difficulties and the hardships and you can say to Jesus, would you transform this? Would you put your life into this? Would you take the deadness of this situation in the same way that you created life out of nothing? Would you take this horrible situation that I'm in and Jesus, would you create life in it such that by your power it could be resurrected from where it is right now? The same Jesus who breathed life into Adam's body can breathe life into a dead marriage, an addicted heart, a wayward son or daughter, deep pain that you don't know what the purpose is of it. And then he ends, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So for some of us today, what our prayer needs to be is, Jesus, I want you to live through me. Through my tears, through my difficulties, through my hardship, I want the life of Jesus to flow through me. And for some of you, the whole reason why you're here today in God's providence is just to remind you that that was the goal. That is the goal, that the life of Jesus living in and through you is the reason why God rescued you and redeemed you and saved you. So friend, in what area of your life right now do you just need to maybe pray just quietly, Lord, would you let the life of Jesus come again? John says Jesus is life. He's the light of men. Now what does he do? That's who Jesus is, those are two things that Jesus is. There's also two things that Jesus does in this text. Go back to John chapter one. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse five, here it comes. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So there's two things that Jesus does. We're moving now from John summarizing what Jesus is like to to what it is that Jesus desires to do. And the first thing that he does is he shines in the darkness. That's what the text says. The light shines in the darkness. What is darkness? Darkness is the spiritual condition of all mankind where we fail to see who God is. We think better of ourselves than we should. We are born into the world with a penchant to think that everybody else is guilty, but we're innocent. A couple weeks ago, my wife had her most favorite Sunday school lesson in her kindergarten classroom. It's where she teaches the very basics of the Ten Commandments, and her sole aim is to convince kindergartners that they're sinners. (laughs) This is an impossible task. And invariably, she comes back with some funny stories. I've told it before, but one year she came back and I said, how'd it go? She said, well, not, not real good. And I said, why? She said, well, because I asked kids if they were sinners, and a little boy raised his hand and said, I'm not, but my sister is. <laughs> and listen, that's, that's indicative of the human race, is it not? It's a part of our darkness. It, it means that you think you can text and drive, but everybody else who does it, it ticks you off. Right? Because you can do it just fine. Right? (laughs) Your friends gossip. You just share things. (laughs) Or you just tell people one at a time. 
You don't tell them in groups, so it's good, right? So this is what we do. We create a double standard for ourselves, and friends, this is part of the darkness of humanity. Part of this belief that I'm okay, but you're not. Or you listen to a sermon, you're like, man, I hope so-and-so's listening to this. Never thinking if you should listen to it. The Apostle Paul describes our darkness as a godless orientation that causes our thinking to be futile, and it actually causes us to have darkened hearts, which means we have the inability to comprehend, appreciate, or even see what we're being told. You ever had a friend like that? Maybe somebody who's so addicted, so in trouble, so stuck that you just talk and talk and talk and talk and it feels like you're talking to a wall, just in one ear and out the other. Like they're a, a zombie in terms of their decision making. Well, that's how the Bible describes us. It calls us dead. It means that while we are physically alive, there's a spiritual deadness to ourselves that we sin willfully, thinking that it's the right decision, convinced that we really deserve it, and we allow our self-centeredness to rule our lives, and tragically, all the while, we are absolutely confident that we are 100% right, although we are 100% wrong. This spiritual condition requires the invasion of Jesus. So when John says he shines light into the darkness, it means that Jesus takes the darkness of the world, or if you're a Christian, it means that at one point in time in your life, I don't care if you were four years old or if you were 75 or however it was when you came to faith in Christ, what happened is the light of the gospel shone into the darkness of your heart and that light illuminated you to see your own sin, for you to feel conviction about it and to believe that someone who died 2,000 years ago could actually cover your sins and when the light of the gospel shone into your heart, you saw it, you believed it, you received it, and in that moment you were converted and that is what Jesus does. He shines into the darkness. And the thing that's so amazing is to consider that no matter how you came to Christ, that's how it happened. And the question for you to ask yourself is this, why you? The more I understand the gospel, the more I understand my own wicked heart, the more I understand my own sinfulness, the more amazed I am that Jesus shone into the darkness and rescued me. And if you've got a friend who's stuck, if you've got a marriage that's stuck, you've got an addiction pattern that's stuck, I got good news for you. When the light of Jesus shines into that situation, it can change absolutely everything. So don't give up hope. Pray for that brother or sister who's stuck. Pray that Jesus, Jesus, by your power, shine light in the darkness. The same one who breathed life into Adam, the same one who said to Lazarus in John chapter 11, Lazarus, come out, is the same Jesus who this very day can say to your friend, to your husband, to your wife, to your child, to your neighbor, come out. Because everyone who's a Christian heard a word similar to this. I'll personalize it. Mark, Rogup, come out. And in that moment, I came out of my own grave, grave of my own self-sufficiency. So he's light in the midst of darkness. He shines in the midst of darkness. Secondly, the text tells us that he's victorious even in rejection. The darkness has not overcome it. Now, if you have another translation, you may realize that the word overcome is a challenging word. We don't have time to unpack it fully. It can mean either not overcome it like conquered it or not overcome it like didn't understand it. 
The word in the original language can mean both. We do this in English as well. For instance, if I say, got it, that could mean, like, I got the bill, like, I take it, I got it. Or someone gives me instruction, I'm like, okay, yeah, I got it, got it. It means I understand it. So we can say take or understand. That's what the word underneath the word overcome is. It can either mean take, like you take it away. So John may mean the world, the darkness, couldn't take it away. He comes to his own things, but they couldn't stop him, even though they didn't understand him, even though they rejected him, even though they killed him, they couldn't stop him. So the darkness cannot overcome him. Satan must have been incredibly frustrated at the resurrection. The very thing he thought that would create the destruction of the Son of God actually paved the way for the salvation of billions of people. How frustrating and how glorious. So it, doesn't, it can mean overcome, like take it, but it also can mean did not understand it. And the idea of this, even though Jesus comes into the world and the world doesn't understand him, he still relentlessly pursues calling people to himself. So even though he's rejected by his own people, he's not deterred. Aren't you thankful that Jesus wasn't deterred by your rejection? It also means that he's not deterred by the rejection of someone who you love. You see, the reality is, is that Jesus is still seeking people to save He's still seeking and saving the lost. He still pursues people. Even right now, he's using this very gospel, this very moment, these words, my words, and you're listening, to shine the light of the gospel into darkened hearts. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, do you know, friend, that God is pursuing you? This sermon on this Sunday and you being in this room or listening to this message is not by mistake. And the question is, do you want to be raised from the dead? If you do, you want Jesus to take over your life, then why not say, I believe Jesus is Lord. Why not say it right now? I mean it right now in this room. You feel somebody, somebody in this room sensing the call of God? Why not just simply say, first time, I believe Jesus is Lord. Follower of Jesus, remember the moment when you received Christ? The aim was not just to rescue you from your sins, but instead to take all of your life and transform it by the power of the risen Christ so that out of the overflow of the wonder of what it means that Jesus rescued you, that you can then take the beauty of the life of Jesus and be able to push that into every part of your life such that being a Christian means that you have concluded four key things. God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, and Christ is my life. He's everything because in him is life, And that light, that life, was the light of men. So the goal and the aim of the gospel, oh, is not just to make you better. The gospel will make you better. The aim of the gospel is to start at a more foundational level, and that is to make dead people live. And that's what Jesus does. He resurrects dead people like you and me. Lord Jesus, thank you. It's an amazing work that you do on our behalf, changing us, conforming us more and more to your image, making us forgiven and righteous in your sight. We ask for you to transform us 
to change us, to empower us, to turn us, to believe that this life of Jesus can transform every part of who and what we are. So God, strengthen hearts, call people to faith today. Thank you that everything we have is in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.